We're in Hebrews chapter 10. So that, that was my transition. So there you go. Uh, we're in Hebrews 10. And I am I'm excited about, I'm excited about really every passage here in Hebrews, but this one has been fun to really wrestle through. We're going to do uh, verses 1 through 18 today. The title is The Mission of Jesus. And I just want you to think for a moment as we're starting off, why do you believe in Jesus? Like, why do you believe Jesus really is the hope of the world? Why do you believe that every other savior-type figure would be considered a counterfeit? Why is it that we as Christians are to be the most joyful people in the world? Why is it that we desire to share the gospel so that others would worship Jesus also? Why is it that Christians will go into other parts of the world willingly to be martyred, if the case, for the sake of the gospel? These are questions, these are hard questions, um, but they're questions that every believer ought to be able to answer. And our text today will answer these questions and so much more. So we've been in Hebrews for a while, since February, and we're going to end in March, first week of March, I think, at least uh, most likely. The church in Hebrews um, has been questioning their faith. They've been persecuted. Uh, they've been arrested. They've had property taken from them. Um, their knees are trembling in fear because the culture has been pressing around them. And so they're, they're debating about abandoning their faith. And so the author from chapter 1 all the way till now has been emphasizing the greatness of Jesus and how Jesus fulfills all that we saw in the Old Testament. And so here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, he's going to bring an argument to a close. Not only the argument he's done since chapter 7, 7, 8, and 9, have been all about Jesus coming as the greater priest, offering the greater sacrifice, but really the argument since he started in chapter 1 on just the greatness of Jesus, that there is no one else like Jesus. He's the radiance of the image of God. He's the exact imprint of God. He is the only hope of the world. And so in these 18 verses, the author is going to show conclusively why Jesus is the Savior of the world, the one who has come to save us from our sins so that we can live with God forever. In these verses, the author is going to explain the mission of Jesus, why he came, what he did, what he accomplished. This text is meant to strengthen our knees. So when we feel like we're beginning to tremble because of the pressures of the world, this text is meant to strengthen us so we wouldn't tremble, that we wouldn't be anxious. These verses are meant to fill us with joy, with hope, with comfort, with strength, so we would proclaim the gospel. And so if this is your, your first time here, and you're like, man, we're like almost through the book of Hebrews, can I really catch up? Yes, because this text really summarizes the first 18, or the first 10 chapters, and it really positions us because next week, we're going to be really getting into what's called like the implications of the gospel. The first 10 and a half chapters, he's laying the foundation of really the gospel and our theology, our understanding of who God is. Then after this this text that we're going to look at, starting next week, he's really going to be pressing in, so what does this mean each and every day for us as believers? How do we take this truth that Jesus is the greater high priest who offered the great and perfect sacrifice so we could be forgiven of our sins and live with God forever? 
How does that get pressed out in everyday life? So that's the transition that we're kind of moving into. Uh, today, the main point these fifth of these 18 verses is that the only way we can be forgiven of our sins is through the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And so uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is stand, and we're going to read these 18 verses. We stand because we believe God's word uh, is inspired by God, comes by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we'd be equipped. And so through this reading right now, I just pray that, that we'd be equipped just by this time right now as the Spirit works through his word. Verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, Father, there is good news in this text. God, this text summarizes the entire gospel. Who your son is, why he came, what he has accomplished, the joy that we have, the message that we preach. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at your word, God, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. And I pray that if there's anyone here who's trembling just right now in their faith, Maybe they're unsure of, of who you are. They're unsure of the forgiveness that you offer. Their assurance in their salvation is weak. It feels shaky. Maybe their understanding of the world and the things that are happening are making them question if you are in control. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this text, you strengthen our knees. Strengthen them for today and strengthen them for tomorrow. 
that we would truly understand your word, your gospel, and that we as your church, your body, your bride, would be filled with an unshakable hope and joy in your son Jesus, and we would have confidence in our salvation, and that confidence would be played out in every relationship that we have, and we would boldly speak of the truth of your son Jesus. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, We're going to walk through this text, I think, in in three sections. We're going to spend the majority in the last section. Um, But what I want us to see is just we're going to walk through the flow of this text. And the first thing we see is the Old Covenant reveals the sinful heart of every single person. In verses 1 through 4, the author briefly reminds us of the weakness, or we could say the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. And if you're, you're new here, or if you're unfamiliar with what it means by Old Covenant, we're talking about the law and the sacrificial system that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai after he rescued Israel out of Egypt. And so just two things I want to say about that. Uh, number one, the Old Covenant is a shadow of a much greater reality. Look at verse 1. The law was but a shadow of good things to come, of the true form of these realities. So what that means is shadows point to the temporal nature of the law. They point to something greater, something more final. Uh, Maybe a way to illustrate this is I'm not an artist at all, um, but, but some of you are. And when you see a painting with all of its color and with all of its brush strokes, like in its final form, it's beautiful. But that's not often how a painting starts. Often it starts with just a canvas, and the artist will take a pencil, and they'll start sketching out what the painting will begin to look like. And I want you to think, that black and white sketch is temporary. It's a shadow of what the final and much more beautiful and great painting will look like. But the painting, when it comes, is much greater than the sketch. The painting includes more detail and color and beauty. So the Old Covenant was like a black and white sketch of the good things to come. And we're going to look in a little bit at what these good things are that Jesus brings in the New Covenant. So that's how we need to understand the Old Covenant. It was a shadow. It's good. It's beautiful, but it fails in comparison to the much greater beauty of the new covenant. The second thing we see is that the old covenant reminds us of our sin. In verse 1, we read that the old covenant could never make us perfect. In verse 2, the author emphasizes that the sacrifices were never finished. And throughout chapter 7, 8, and 9, and here in 10, the point has been repetition equals insufficiency. Does that make sense? Repetition is insufficient. The point of these sacrifices is not what they could do, but what they could not do. So think of it like this. William Barclay, a theologian, he he gave a, a really good analogy. He said, if a man becomes ill and takes medicine that heals him, then every time he looks at that bottle, that that medicine, he'll be reminded of his new health. But if the medicine is unable to heal him, then every time he looks at the bottle, he'll be remembered of his sickness. That's the old covenant. 
Every time they make these sacrifices over and over and over again, it's reminding them sinful, sinful, sinful. Verse 3, we see in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The blood-stained garments of the priest and the pools of blood on the temple ground were a vivid reminder of the sin that is in our hearts. The old covenant was given to Israel so they'd be reminded of how sinful that they were. And as we read the old covenant, it reminds us of how sinful we are. And the Bible is clear. We are sinners. In our hearts, we have anger. We have bitterness. We have impatience. We have lust. We have greed. We have feelings of inferiority. We have feelings of superiority. We fail to perfectly love others. We fail to to love our husbands or our wives or our children. Those in the church or those outside the church. 1 John 1.18 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 says this, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, we make God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So according to Scripture, we're either perfect or God is a liar. I don't think it's too hard to figure out which one is true. We all know there's sin within us. Now, none of us really like talking about sin, especially our sin. We all want to feel good about ourselves. We don't like being reminded how sinful we are, the fact that we don't do things right all the time, that we're guilty of breaking God's rules. We want pats on the back, not kicks in the gut, right? But think about this. One of the primary reasons of the Old Testament, which which displays the old covenant, is that we'd be reminded of our sin. It's to literally put our sin in front of us. There are 39 books in the Old Testament with the sole intent of reminding us of our sin. So the Bible wants us to know we are sinners. It's not trying to hide that. It's not trying to just pat you on the back and say, you're a really good person. You probably don't need anything. No, it's reminding us of our sin. And and why does it do this? Because we need a Savior. And it wants us to know who that Savior is. It wants to be prepared. It wants us to be prepared for that Savior. And so what we understand is good news is only good news when we understand that there's bad news. And when we read the Old Testament, bad news is grace because it leads us to the good news. Does that make sense? So we don't need to like shy away or recoil from the Old Testament going, you know, when I read the Old Testament, I just keep seeing sinfulness and sinfulness and sinfulness. Exactly. It's showing us the character of God, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, and so much more. And it's reminding us of how sinful we are, and yet there is a solution. And it's pointing us the entire time for 39 books so that when Jesus comes on the scene, we'd go, yes, that's him. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah, which is the point in verses 5 through 9. Jesus established a new covenant that decisively deals with our sin. Look at verse 5. You see that first word? Consequently. In other words, because the old covenant was insufficient to deal with our sin, Jesus came into the world. Verses 1 through 4 are bad news. We are sinners. The endless blood of lambs and goats screams out, guilty. But then we read, 
Consequently. I just want you to think, that, that word is there so we breathe a sigh of relief. There's really bad news. We're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty. And that's why, consequently, Jesus comes. Look at verses 5 through 7. The author quotes Psalm 40. And, and I want to explain just a moment how he can take the words of David who wrote Psalm 40, and say, they're actually the words of Jesus. So I just, I just want to take a moment to just, just, just so we understand how that takes place. Um, we do need to read the Bible historically. So we do need to read the Bible. David was actually the author of Psalm 40. Um, we actually want to understand the culture and the things that happened in the Old Testament, why things matter, what was the context of them, what was God doing in them. There are real historical figures in the Bible. So that's one way we read them, and it's very, very necessary. But another way, and this is kind of a word we don't use all the time, is, is through the lens of what we call typology. You don't really use that probably a lot. Um, but typology basically says there are places, peoples, events, and systems that take place in the Old Testament that find a greater reality in the New Testament. Make sense? Things in the Old Testament pointing to a greater reality. It's kind of like what we read in verse 1. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come. It was a shadow of of a greater reality. And we see this all throughout the Bible. And the New Testament authors are intent that we would see this. In fact, remember chapter 7? We came across that mysterious guy called Melchizedek. He was a type of Christ. He's pointing us to Jesus, the true and ultimate high priest. The sacrifices in the Old Testament point us to the one true and greater ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. The earthly tabernacle points us to the heavenly tabernacle. The flood that we read about in Genesis 6 and 7 is a type of judgment that finds its greatest fulfillment in the judgment of God at the end of time. King David, as a king of God's people, points us to the true and ultimate king, Jesus and so one thing we have to realize is when we're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we're going to be seeing these, these types. We're going to be seeing as, as the Old Testament is moving us towards greater reality. And so when David is saying, is, is writing Psalm 40, it is true for him. And yet the author wants us to know that those words find their ultimate fulfillment in the very mouth of Jesus Christ, as the true and greater king, as our true and greater priest, as our savior. And so um, what we read in these verses is that ultimately Jesus came to do God's will. We see that in verse 7. It says, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. That could be referring to the Old Testament. It could be referring to Psalm, to Isaiah 53. It could be referring to uh, Deuteronomy, where it's literally talking about the role of the king. But what we see is Jesus has come to do God's will. And God's will is that he would have a people who are forgiven of their sins. That's the mission of Jesus. That's why he comes. How does he accomplish it? Well, he first tells us what he 
doesn't do. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus doesn't come to offer animal sacrifices. Why? What covenant do those belong to? The old covenant, where there is a reminder of sins. And there's a reminder because of repetition. So he's not going to offer animal sacrifices. But then what we actually see in verse 5, Jesus comes to offer himself. It says, but a body you have prepared for me. In verse 6, we see God takes no pleasure in animal sacrifices. One of the reasons God takes no pleasure in those animal sacrifices is because they do not decisively deal with sin, which is why Jesus comes in the flesh, in bodily form, so that he would not offer an animal, a goat, or a lamb, but he would offer himself a true and perfect substitute for you and for me so that he would pay the price of our sins on the cross that we could not pay. That's the mission of Christ. And notice what happens when he does that. Jesus abolishes the old covenant and establishes the new covenant. Verse 9, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Well, what's the first? What was the old covenant? What was given at Mount Sinai? So he's doing away with that to establish a much greater covenant. So Jesus brings an end to the insufficient and temporary black and white sketch of the old covenant and establishes the true and eternal, all-sufficient new covenant. That's what happens at the death of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. So then the question is, why is it so good? Like, what does this new covenant do? Let's look at the brushstrokes, the beauty, the color of the new covenant. And so that's what we're going to do. If you look at verse 1, He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things, we're now going to look at what those good things are. We're going to look at what five five good things every believer receives through the new covenant. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time. And so I want you to know that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then every single one of these five things that we're going to look at are true of you right now. If you've not believed in Jesus Christ, then I want you to know that if you do believe in Jesus Christ today, then they are true of you when you believe in Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that this is all available for you today by God's grace. First thing I want us to see, look at verse 10. Well, we're going to do it in five words. I felt like that was easiest. I thought about doing phrases. That seemed like a lot of work. So I just said, we'll just do simple words. So sanctified is the first word. Look at verse 10. By that will. Whose will? Whose will? Well, if we, if we go back to verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus comes to do God's will. Verse 9, behold, I've come to do your will, God's will. By that will. Whose will? God's will. The Father's will. By the Father's will, we've been sanctified. By God's will, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been sanctified. Now that word sanctified is the word holy. It means that we've been set apart to be devoted to God. So that everything we do in life would be pleasing to God. Now look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What the old covenant could not do, Jesus has 
done. The word, now notice, the word sanctified in verse 10 and the word perfected in verse 14, that's past tense. You have been sanctified. You have been perfected. When you believe in Jesus, God's word says you have permanently been made holy. Do you know that? Like right now, he says, you are holy. Now, that doesn't mean you won't sin anymore. But you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And the author speaks in the past tense of our salvation in order to communicate the absolute certainty we have regarding the forgiveness of our sins. Does that make sense? So he speaks of it in past tense because it's so incredibly certain. You are sanctified. You are perfected. Past tense. Even though we know we still wrestle with it. So that we would know that right now, because of the blood of Jesus, God sees us as cleansed, holy, perfected. Paul does the same thing. Romans 8. Many of you know this passage. Romans 8, 29 to 30. Just think about these words. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now, wait a minute. We got predestined, called, justified, glorified. All spoken of as if they've already been accomplished. Now, have you been glorified? No, that happens when Christ returns. But Paul speaks of it in such certainty that he can say, you have been glorified. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ, we're to have great certainty and assurance of our salvation. The mission of Jesus is that you'd be perfected, sanctified, and guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. And if you trust in Jesus, that's true of you today. Isn't that good news? Now you just think about it. You like turn on Fox or CNN or whatever like three-letter, you know, news network you like. There's no good news. <laughs> like there's just not. But in here, there's good news. And it comes to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who he accomplished God's will so that if we believe in him, you're saved. You're perfected. You're sanctified. Word number two, finished. Through the last few chapters, the author has mentioned repeatedly, animal sacrifices do not take away sins. It's because of that. The priest's job was never, ever done. This is why. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, the Old Testament priest never sat down. Why? Because he was never done. As the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember, repetition equals what? Insufficiency. But then notice. Notice how the author speaks of Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 10, Jesus Jesus Christ died once for all, verse 12, when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time. Verse 18, where there is no forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin, meaning it's been done, it's finished. 
Do you see the contrast? Old Testament priests regularly, daily offering sacrifice. Jesus offers one. Repetition is replaced with finality. Do you remember Jesus' last words on the cross? John 19.30. It is finished. What's finished? God's will. What's God's will? That he would have a people who would be saved, sanctified, perfected. Look, at the cross, at his death and resurrection, Jesus accomplished the mission of the Father. Jesus came to do God's will, and he accomplished it. The mission is over. Every week, we recognize the finality of Jesus' sacrifice when we come to this table right here. And this is a table. Do you understand that? It's not a table in every gathering. I'll just say gathering. The Roman Catholic Church, do you know what they have in front? An altar. And do you know what they have? They have the elements on. And every time in a Roman Catholic church you come to partake of communion, they believe in something called trans- transubstantiation. They're one of those words you use all the time, right? Try to use that at lunch today. Like seriously, you get gold stickers if you can. Um, what that means is that as they take the blood, nope, sorry, as they take the juice and the bread, and as they take it, there's a miracle that takes place, and it actually turns into the very blood and body of Christ. Still tastes like normal, so don't think like it's really weird, but it's pretty weird. But they believe, and according to the Council of Trent, and there was another meeting in 19, I think, 45, the Roman Catholic Church has reaffirmed and today declares that when you take communion, you are re-sacrificing the body of Christ. We do not believe that because Scripture teaches Jesus was offered how many times? Once. It's over. Even Rome, uh, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Never again will Christ be sacrificed. Never again will there be any sacrifices because Christ has put an end to the law and the sacrificial system. It's done. Mission accomplished. So we gather and what do we do? We celebrate. We remember. We recognize that Jesus is the true Son of God. And that the death and resurrection took place 2,000 years ago. Mission accomplished. Sins have been paid for never again to be re-sacrificed. Isn't that good news? You don't have to wonder, is there something more I need to do? It's all accomplished 2,000 years ago at the cross. You're not going to improve on Jesus' salvation. And think about it, there's no need to, right? Because you are what? Perfected, sanctified, already in Christ. Nothing else needs to be done in order for us to be forgiveness. All of it is accomplished in Jesus. Number three, the word conquered. In verse 13, we read that Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. What we read throughout Scripture is that at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and all of his enemies. Um, 
We have other New Testament writers that write about this too. I want you to think. This is what 1 John 3.8 says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, referring to the spiritual authorities, by triumphing over them in him. Now you might say, no, wait a minute. When I look at the world, it doesn't look like Satan's been defeated. It doesn't look like he's been bound. It doesn't look like he's been restricted. It doesn't look like he's dying. Isn't he still causing chaos? Yep. Think of it like this. On June 6, 1944, soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy. On that day, the tide turned. Germany was destined to be defeated then. But the victory wasn't announced for 336 more days on May 8, 1945. So we have D-Day, and then we have V-Day. But the, 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 the defeat of Germany was sealed on D-Day. And in the cross is D-Day for Satan and all the kingdoms of the world. They've been defeated. It still looks like they're alive. They're still moving. But the victory is guaranteed. And when V-Day will be when Jesus returns. And at that time, all people will recognize the full reign and authority of King Jesus. And all the kingdoms of the world will be fully and absolutely laid low. So I want you to think about that. We, we know that Jesus is victorious now, which means we know the future of this world. We know the future of every kingdom. We know the future of every world power and leader and dictator and government. We know it. We already know what's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know what will happen. On the day that Christ returns, all world powers will be laid low and defeated, and there'll be one kingdom that remains. The kingdom of God. That means we do not need to be anxious about the things today. Do you know that? Like it's so easy to get caught up in what's happening here in the United States, what's happening in other parts of the world, or as we see evil and other things rising, it's easy to get caught up in that and then become anxious about those things as if they're just chaotically happening and there's no control behind them. But what we read all throughout Scripture is that our God and our King Jesus is in absolute control. And he's bringing all things down to a final day when his son will return. This truth ought to make us the most, most peace-filled people in all the world. Now that means we're going to have to fight for it. That means that the way we're going to experience that is by daily encouraging one another because... We often are forgetful of things, right? So we need to regularly remind each other. One reason we gather like this or in table groups or one-on-one or, -on -one or in coffee shops or whatever it is is to remind each other of the truths of God's word so we don't forget, we don't get sidetracked. 
But we know that our king rules right now. And he is returning. And there will be no power who can thwart his will. Number four, the word transformed. In verses 16 to 17, the author quotes from the Old Testament. And he quotes from the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. And he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And that passage looks forward to the new covenant. We actually preached on this uh, back in Hebrews chapter 8. So I'm only going to say one thing here. If you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you can listen to all that we said about that. Um, But the one thing I just want us to see here as we look at verses 16 and 17 is that you are new. You've been transformed. Look at these words. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins no more. When we read that God places his law in our heart, in our minds, he's telling us that we are now new in Christ. We have a new identity. We've been transformed. Our identity is in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any was in Christ, he is a new, do you remember? He's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As a child belongs to his father, so now we belong to God, and Jesus is our elder brother. Do you know that? Like each week when we gather, we gather as new creations, members of God's family, filled with the Spirit of God. That's why there's no gathering, no fellowship sweeter than this right here. And I don't care if you gather with mask or no mask, whatever it is, there is no sweeter gathering than this. Because we've been filled with the Spirit. We're new creations that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. And the last one, we're freed. We're freed. Look down at verse 17 and 18. It says, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now when it says God does not remember your sin, it's not like you and I don't remember things. Like the reason we don't remember, you know why we don't remember things, right? Because we forget. Because we get older. And, and just not everything sticks anymore, right? Some of you young people are like, well, everything still sticks. Um, one day. God hasn't accidentally forgotten your sins. He willfully chooses to never bring them up again. Do you know that? That's that's so much greater than just forgetting. Because if you forget, then you might remember, right? We all have that happen sometimes. But God says, I will never bring your sin up again. You are freed. Freed from sin. Freed from guilt. Freed from shame. Get this. Your past does not define you. Do you know that? Like I, I think we, we know that up here, but the way we live functionally, sometimes we deny that. 
And we actually still let our past inform the way we live and dictate the way we live. Um, Isaiah 43. I just want to read this. This is, this is a description of how Israel is living. It says, But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So this is Israel. This is the way they're living. They're burdening God. They're living in their sin. And yet God then says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins anymore. I just want to ask you, do you, do you know that you're new in Christ? Do you know that you're forgiven? And by forgiven, that means you're freed from your sin, that it would no longer hold you bondage? So often I think we still, we're still wrestling with that. The old covenant reminds us of sin, right? That was the point. Verse 3, reminder of sin every time. But the new covenant, no reminder. Do you see the difference now from, verse, from the beginning of this passage to the end of the passage? It starts out with, there's a big reminder. You're guilty. It ends with, there is no longer a reminder because Christ has paid for it. You are forgiven. The remembrance we do is, is right here at the table. Christ has forgiven us of our sins. We're new, we're perfected, we're sanctified. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is what defines you now. And if God, the Holy Creator and Savior of the world, has approved you, then we have no need to win the approval of man. We don't have to put on a front. We don't have to try to impress people so they'll be, so we'll be accepted. We don't have to spend hours online proving our social media profiles. You are in Christ. Jesus has perfected you. Jesus has saved you. Jesus has made you new. Jesus has defeated all enemies. So there is nothing and no one and no power that can reverse this identity that you have been given by grace in Jesus. Isn't that good news? Amen, indeed. In staff meeting right now, we're reading a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Just so you know, um, number one bestseller of all time is the Bible. Number two is Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, if you've not read that, you should read that. Um, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And and there's a guy named Christian. It's about him making it into the very kingdom of God where he lives with God. But, but this is what happens when he comes to the cross. So I just want you to get this picture in your mind. It says, he, this is Christian, he ran like this until he came to a place where the road climbed up a small hill. At the top of the hill stood a cross. And a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. In my dream, just as Christian came up, to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. It tumbled and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. That burden represents the sin that we have. And he tried to take it off and he couldn't. The only thing that removed it is when he came to the cross because of the work of Jesus Christ, that burden was removed and it was taken away so that he would never be burdened by it again. 
I hope you know that if you have believed in Christ, your sin, your past, the things you have done or things that have been done to you do not define you. You're a child of God. You're precious in his sight. You are sanctified. You are perfected. You are glorified. These are all future realities spoken of in past terms because it is so incredibly certain that they're happening to you because of Christ. Do you understand that? There's no better news than what we read here in God's word. 1 Peter uh, 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I love that. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin, live to righteousness. Get this, by his wounds, you've been healed. That's the gospel. So if you're ever like, someone comes up to you and says, hey, could you walk me through the gospel. Could you explain to me why Jesus came? Could you tell me why Jesus is the one and only Savior? You just take them to chapter 10, 1 through 18, and you walk them through what Christ has done. And you point out these realities that are true of you because of Christ. And if they place their faith in them, they become true of them. And I want you to know that if you've not believed in Christ, these are true. If Well, they're true no matter what, but they become true to you when you believe in Christ. They're applied to you. That you would forever have entrance into the kingdom of God. The author has reminded the church of Hebrews of these truths so their knees would stop shaking. So they wouldn't be trembling. But they'd realize that Jesus is the only hope of the world and that they would now continue on in their faith. And so as we read this today, the same is true for us. We've gone through ten and a half chapters with the whole sole purpose of our faith being concreted in the very work of God that we would know in Christ we are saved. There's no other Savior. There's no other hope. In Him is the hope of the world. So that we would live in boldness of that truth. We're now going to pray and then we're going to take uh, partake of communion this morning. Father,